It's Sunday, May 22nd, and you are listening to Peanuts and Popcorn. P&P is a baseball podcast interrupted by a movie discussion between two old friends. I'm Tom Hockney. And I'm Leo Fontana. This week on Peanuts and Popcorn, we are in mourning this month as we learn of the passing of Roger Angel. Hunter Green and Andrew Warren of the Reds combined to no-hit the Pirates, and Cincinnati still loses. Batman pleads guilty to distribution of drugs, and we will discuss the worst stadium in Major League Baseball. We'll run the bases on Chicago baseball, and our popcorn discussion is on Terrence Malick's The Thin Red Line. Tom, how are you doing? I'm I'm awake, uh, tan, rested, and ready. Ready to go, you, baby. Help. You get into to your topics. I heard about a very serious tornado up there in northern Michigan. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. I'm glad, glad you brought that up. That's Gaylord, which is probably an hour, 45 minutes um, northwest of here, mostly north of here. And uh, I knew the severity of it during the day. We, we have a great local... Um, TV station that covers um, the Lower Peninsula, mid mid Michigan, they call it. Uh, it's nine and ten. It's actually two two channels that combined over time, and it's a CBS affiliate. The weather people overtook the the, the TV channel for about four hours, and that's when I realized. And they were actually following the tornado in real time, and and saying, "Hey, it's about to hit this mall. Get you know that it, kind of yeah, stuff." They cover very very informative. You know, unusual, by the yeah, way. That's, that's rare. There's, there's, you, you rarely get tornadoes like that up there. Yeah, there, there's like 20 tornadoes in Michigan a year, and most of them are 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 you know um, um, not very not not large. And in, 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 so this was kind of a big thing. I'm learning a lot of stuff being here in Michigan. It's it's not you know up, there's there's a reason why this is one of the highest regarded. Um, states in regards to nature and so forth, which is going to be a theme in this this uh, this podcast today. Um, so you know, as you know, I do a lot of walking. I've I've, I've lost now over 60 pounds, um, and basically I walk eight miles a day, and I break it into two separate four mile uh, sections, basically the same one where I walk around Bud Lake, this lake, and then get up into kind of the city area. And then I turn around and come back and that equals a four mile walk. And there is one portion of the walk where I am um, vulnerable to traffic. That's the best way to say it. And so um, there's actually a makeshift cross at one point where a boy died about 10 years ago and then they put rails around um and, and except for this one spot where uh, ironically where the boy was hit is not protected and so every day when i walk by this cross i uh, was you know I, it makes me think okay is there cars around you know i gotta i gotta move and if there's puddles i have to walk into the street it's just this whole thing that i have to go through well this week um uh, lo and behold i'm making that turn around the corner and some old guy was looking at his phone and 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 he he just missed me and 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 one like felt false swoop fortunately he was driving very slow like an old man uh but but it's still kind of nothing you know makes you feel more alive like when you're faced with hey maybe i could get hurt here let me tell you there's that that really kind of put a in fact my fitbit said Wow, you're doing very well. Your your heart rate is exactly where it should be. <laughs> that's a great setup. No, that's good. Well, I'm glad. How, you're... how is your How is Maggie your brand? I've been thinking about Maggie ever since you showed me a picture of her. How's well, she doing? Maggie McCormick is our dog, our new puppy, um, and she's a white English retriever. Absolutely and beautiful dog. Let she, me tell you. Yeah, she really is everywhere we take her because we started taking her now on walks into the park around the neighborhood and everywhere we go, people are stopping. They want to they want to, you know, come up and pet her. They want to see her. They want to know great. her name. You know, everybody is completely taken at how beautiful this dog is. And she's great. You know, she really is a good dog. She's a little afraid of me. You know, which is okay. I don't mind that yeah. so much. You know, I'm, yeah, you're the alpha male, though. That's I'm to be the expected. Alpha male, right? And and I realize that you know a little fear in that aspect is is going to come with this, but she'll warm up. And it's me. not a bad thing either, as no, she's learning no. the way. Yeah, it isn't a bad thing. And and when I'm alone with her, she she thinks I'm the greatest. But 
But no one, you know, she loves no one more than our youngest daughter, Nora, our nine-year-old daughter. She, if Nora walks into the room, whatever Maggie's doing, whoever she's playing with, she'll stop and go right to Nora. When we're outside, she just chases her around everywhere. And it is, I got to tell you, it is a beautiful thing. That dog is going to be complete, is going to be Nora's dog. Yeah. You know, for as long as she lives. How how do the other two kids feel about that? Because I don't know how I, that would sit with me if I if I was vying for the dog's attention. I guess Lily Lily is a little hurt, although the dog likes Lily too. But Lily's a little hurt about it. But Lily's okay. She's mature. She's on. She understands these things. Uh, the dog also actually likes William a great deal. But William, he's not plus. He's not plussed. He's nonplussed. I mean, he likes the dog. He pets the yeah. dog, but he's more of a cat guy. He's he's more into our cat Willow. That's sort of the relationship he has with the pet. You know what I mean? I, I would expect nothing less from a long distance runner. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's a lot of time to think when he's out there running. And then and then, but but my wife is completely over the moon for this dog, and uh, she's That's just really cool. it's really improved her mood. So we're very, very happy with the addition of this new family member. But okay, let's so get... one last question about yeah. this. So who is the primary caregiver, meaning who puts the food down? Do you all do it or does your wife do it mostly? My wife does it mostly, but we all do it. And I do it in the morning because my wife sleeps in. That's kind of her thing. You, so... you may be surprised that while she's preferential to Nora now, meaning Maggie, yeah. it might be your wife that it ends up being. I'm just saying, because that's as much as I wanted the dude to love me first, he made it very clear to me that Gwen was number one. And in case Gwen could not fulfill her duties, <laughs> I was the first runner up. You're the first runner And that never, ever came into play. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway. It's like the guy from Monopoly. You finish second in a beauty contest. You exactly. Know? Exactly. So. So uh, let's get right to it. And uh, I want to begin with uh, what, I don't know, this is a very sad, sad day for me, a sad week and a month. You know, uh, the great writer for The New Yorker, uh, Roger Angel, passed away at the age of 101. And this is, this is rough. This was a blow to me because Angel's books and essays in The New Yorker, they, they really informed the way that I look at baseball in terms of it being an art form um, to the extent that it is almost a poetry. You know, an angel, he didn't necessarily like to being referred to as a poet uh, when it came to baseball anyway. He rather, he liked to say that he was a journalist, although he, he was a reporter. Him. Yeah, he a was reporter. a reporter, a journalist, and he was writing about the men uh, who were playing this game. And he would do, I remember my father subscribed to the New Yorker and he would do generally three long yes. essays a year. I mean, when I yes. say long, okay. you, know, you remember the New Yorker, there's yes. six, seven pages right. with full, you know, three columns on each page. Correct. And um, number six font too, by the yeah, way. Yeah, number six font. And I would go crazy. Yeah. I mean, if I saw... You know, I would the, the New Yorker would come every week. I would grab it before my dad and I would before my father and I would just go right to see if Angel had written anything. And, uh, you know, he was a master at the simile. No one wrote better similes than you. And you cited an article from The New York Times where they talked about, you know, they, they, they cited some of the things that he some of the ways that he would use similes to describe uh, uh, what he was seeing. And I remember one that they didn't mention where he talked about a catcher trying to catch a knuckleballer. And he said that he resembled, he was like a, a bulldog trying to corner a nest of field mice. That's yeah, what it was yeah. like, you know, yeah, and, yeah, and it was just right. wonderful stuff. Great interviews. His biography of David Cohn 
is must reading. There was another one I want to mention. He talked about how Louis Tiant was a famous dawdler on the mound. He would take forever to deliver a pitch and that it reminded him of a sunstruck archaeologist at Nassos. (laughs) Do I I keep this pot, sir? Or does Smithsonian want it? (laughs) Suddenly, he discovers writing on the potsherd. He looks, pauses, throws it away. The whole thing goes again. Everybody's yawning and passes out boredom. Yeah, just wonderful stuff. Well, well, Tion's delivery itself was a human rain delay. That that triple clutch thing that he used to do. You know, um, well, first of all, I too mourn him, um, a a literary giant, a titan, um, even though he hated being referred to like that, but he was 101. Yeah. He, he had a life that we could all just dream about having. He wrote until, I believe, 2014, yeah. which would have put him well into his 90s, um, impressive all the way around. The reason why he wrote baseball, and the, uh, wrote about baseball versus other sports, and the reason why we love baseball, and we've talked about this before, is because he used to say you could sit and watch a game and the time and the pacing of baseball would allow you to occasionally come up with a good idea uh, as a writer. But he had, he had to me, the greatest um, line in baseball that I've ever read, which was, baseball will stick it to you. It's meant to break your heart. It really is. And, and, and oh, yeah. my God, every season you will get your heart broken, even if you win the championship, as we learned in 2016. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, an absolute titan and uh, – uh, you know, uh, he, you know, his, his father-in-law was E.B. White, the S.E.S. Right. E. E.B. Right. White. And and so I expected him as he grew up, based on reading this obituary in The New York Times, that he would become this literary giant just because of the fact that he lived with literary giants. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like some of that after a while starts to rub off because they start to say, these are the things you need to study. These are the things you don't need to, you know, and, and ultimately. Here's you think here's how you need to write. He took yeah. the best of all of those people. And his mother was the for one of the first editors of the New Yorker. Um, and so he, he just grew up in a house where writing was, in my mind, which to me is one of the most noblest thing a, a human can do, was was encouraged and fostered. And, and, and it was the perfect um, you know, laboratory laboratory for his brain to kind of develop into the great scribe that he became. One of his essays, Scout, was the basis mm-hmm. for that uh, that movie with Alvin Brooks where he plays the scout. Yes. He goes and gets Brendan or whatever, the, the, he gets the pitcher who, Steve Nebraska, yeah. goes yeah. to Mexico yeah. and brings him to the Yankees and he's a great pitcher and a great hitter. So, uh, but that was based on an Angel essay. But, yeah. but you know, if you never read him, he is absolutely wonderful. He will remind you of why you watch baseball, yeah. you know, what it is about baseball that stirs your soul and makes you, you know, it just makes you, I don't know, that just gets inside your head, gets inside your soul and really makes you sing. So, yeah, you know, the re- reason why he he loved the game also as well is because so many different weird things could happen within a game. Yeah. Speaking of which, yeah. earlier this week, there was a goofball no hitter thrown in the major leagues. Why don't you tell us about it? Well, it was a combined no hitter with uh, it was a combined no hitter between uh, Adam Warren and uh, Hunter Green. Hunter Green started Adam Warren relieved him. Uh, and this was now green is this fireballer. Yes. This guy can throw 100 miles an hour basically every time. Yes. But what comes with that are some walks <laughs> and uh, and some long home runs and some long home runs, too, when when the hitters do make contact. And and so what ended up happening was the Reds combined to throw a no hitter against the Pirates and they lost one to nothing. And the real sad part about this is that it's not counted as a no hitter because the Reds were the home team and they, you know, or the Reds were the home team and, you know, the Pirates. But they they lost the game. And also, Andrew Warren, you walked three hitters in that inning that led to this thing. I mean, it's just, you've got no one to blame but yourself. I kind of, once I saw it the next day, I was like, what the hell happened? I went and read the box score and then read the actual inning by inning. I was like, oh, well, you can't walk three guys. I mean, Right. right, right. No. Well, the same thing happened back in 1990 at a game that I was in attendance. I remember you've talked about this before. 
I have. And and it was funny because Andy Hawkins no hit the White Sox and the Yankees lost four to nothing due to, I think, three walks and two errors. Two big errors. Two big errors by Jesse Barfield and Jim Leritz. Look at and, you uh, pulling that out of your 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 I, I, I just your remember, fault. I remember Barfield, you know, reaching up and it was a sunny day and it just clanked off of his glove. Same thing happened to Leritz and left. But 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 you're right. I mean, and I remember Hawkins had a quote after the game. This is the greatest day of my life. I just haven't realized it yet. <laughs> so, but, uh, but this does happen. This has happened like four or five times. And what was really bad about the 1991 and what's really bad about this one, too, is that the commissioner at the time, uh, I think it was uh, Bowie Kuhn. It might have been Bowie Kuhn. I don't know if it was him or not. But No, he, no. Well, it was this was post-Bart Giamatti because uh, Giamatti yeah. died. And so it would have been um, uh, Faye, Vincent, Faye Vincent. Yeah, that's right. It was Faye Vincent. Thank you for putting that together. And Vincent, <laughs> well, because it didn't go nine innings, it's not a no-hitter. Right, and, right. you know, I was absolutely crestfallen for years because that was the only no-hitter I'd seen live until I had the fortune of going to Cincinnati and seeing Jake Arrieta throw a no-hitter against the Reds at the Great American Ballpark. So, you know, I struggle in my mind to think of any other sport where that outcome could yeah. be like that. In football, you cannot win a game without gaining a yard. Yeah, you, right, it, it's, right, you know right. what I'm saying? Like if you try to in basketball, the point, the score must come yeah. through. Yeah. You, so can't, I, it, you can't hold them to a shutout. Right. And lose. I think hockey, potentially you could get an own goal situation that maybe would resemble it. But baseball has so many of these unique things that 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 basically drew Roger uh, Angel, not to refer to him again, to the sport and to us, because something like this could occur in our great game. And it's just mystifying. It is. It is. Because, you know, there's 27 chances for the other team to get a hit. You know, it's not like soccer, where in a close, low scoring game, you know, you might only get one or two, you know, good chances to score a goal. So you, you get at least 27 chances. What if there are, you know, pass balls on the third strike? But anyways. <laughs> so um, in other news, a former Red and a former Met, uh, Matt Harvey, if you remember him, he goes by did, the name. Did, did he win the Cy Young Award? Yeah, I think he did win a Cy Young Award. He did back in, I guess it was a few years ago. Yeah. Back yeah. when the Mets, you know, uh, people thought they actually had good pitching. Well, he had an incredible one year uh, yeah. where he was just, no one could hit him. But but this is a guy who liked to party. And uh, it really kind of ruined his career. But he was basically suspended for 60 games because he has pled guilty to distribution of drugs. Now, this is somehow related to the Tyler Skaggs death and that the two of them Gave drugs to each other. That is, is correct. That correct. Yeah. And uh, so opioids and cocaine. Yeah. And so there's a big, big, much bigger story here for me. And that is, yeah, this is, you know, Harvey, you got caught up in the Skaggs death. That's the only reason why we know about this, by the way, is basically because of, you know, baseball's equivalent of a grand jury investigation into Skaggs's death. Who all did he touch? Who all, you know, was their communication, checking their texts back and forth? That's how Harvey got caught up in this. Otherwise, we'd never know about it. Which brings me to my big point. Cocaine and opioids? Uh, aren't you guys being drug tested on a semi-regular basis? Yeah. I'm not understanding because basically what this tells me, this may be more prevalent than we're aware of. Yeah. That, that this must be a mic much or could potentially be a much bigger issue that somehow is being masked through the drug, the drug testing policy or and or the drug testing policy or program is not very effective. Right. Right. And yeah. Either they're they're figuring out ways to dodge it or or it's just not effective in its own sort of creation. So this is uh, really kind of disturbing, actually. And uh I don't know, uh, something, you know, we, we sit here from the point of view of fans and yeah. we don't have the inside knowledge. We don't have the relationships and the contacts and we don't know what's happening when that clubhouse door closes. And uh, we only hope that players are making good decisions and uh, that these are professional athletes who are 
who are who need their bodies to be in tip top shape? I, I I don't know. This is uh quite well, a let me pose the question to you because you've always said Trevor Bauer is done. He's not going to pitch again in the major leagues. Is Matt Harvey done? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's an old guy at this point, anyways. He, he was, he was. I, I mean, was he pitching for any team at the time? You know, at, at the time of his suspension, I don't think. I he think was. so. I think I think he was with Baltimore, trying to make it back to the bigs. I think, but but any anywho. But but uh, I don't think he'll be back. No, I don't think he'll be back at all. He he's got the mark of Cain on him, buddy. You yeah. know, he, he's not gonna. I don't. How can any team? go out of their way to bring them on their roster. You know, I, I, there are just so many young and talented players that you can bring up in your own system. And you want to have this controversial figure who, 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 you know, participated in this horrible drug scandal that led to the death of a player. I mean, it, it, it you don't want to say that he killed him, but, you know, at the same time, when he's doing drugs with him, he's certainly a party to it. I don't know. You know, if I was a young, uh, you know, uh, Woodward Bernstein type reporter in baseball, I'd be digging a little bit deeper into this story because it appears as though this may be one of those tip of the iceberg situations where, yes, this became known because someone died. How much more of this is going around right now? That's that's the big question. How bad is it? All right. So let's move to the next topic. And this is what is you pose this question. What is the worst stadium? Yeah, major. I want to pose it to you first. Pose it to me. Okay, so yeah. so I'm going to tell you what I think because there have been a lot of awful ones. Oh yeah, yeah. and some of these stadiums are, are no longer with us. They thank God. Out. Thank God. Um, I'm going to begin with um, what I consider the some of the worst, and and it's it's a sort of a trifecta. It's <laughs> it's or or a quadrifecta. It's the perfecta. It's the Philadelphia's Veteran Stadium. Yes. Three River Stadium in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati, also known as Synergy Field, and Bush Stadium in St. Louis. Now, of the four, Bush Stadium was actually the better because they kind of redesigned the inside and sort of made it a little nicer. The lines were a little more graceful. It wasn't as bad as the first three, but it was those sort of cookie cutter, multi-use stadiums that I, I really hated more than anything. So those yeah. are my those are my worst ones. You basically described what I would say. These are late stadiums. They're no longer with us. Yeah. I'm talking yeah. about right now, my man. Right, right now. now. Think about it for a second. Not too long, because we do have one listener that's All right. hanging so, up. Can we do have a, a listener hanging? <laughs> All right. So, you know, I, I've I've been to a lot of stadiums. Well, while you're thinking about it, let me tell you what mine is. But you think yeah. about that, and we'll go to yours here in a second. All right. I've you know, been watching a lot of Tiger games. And early this week, the Detroit Tigers visited the Tampa Bay Rays down at Tropicana Stadium. And something happened, not once, but twice, that made me go, what the hell is going on here? And because of the roof of the stadium, they have these rings that if the ball hits certain rings in the stadium, it could be anywhere from a home run to a double or, or not out, uh, but out of play. It's a foul. It doesn't doesn't count. And it has to do with the trajectory of how the ball is hit in the stadium. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, this is God awful. If this was the Yankee Stadium, this would have been fixed yeah, eons right. ago. It's because it's Tampa Bay and because in that stadium, they now have it so that only 25,000 people can sit comfortably in that park uh, and not have obstructions or other things in the way. It's the smallest capacity in the major leagues. And by the way, they struggle to fill those seats, as we all know. That's why we've talked about the whole Montreal thing. And and the only reason why this park hasn't been replaced is basically the taxpayers of Tampa Bay said, uh, it's not going to be on our backs. Yeah, we're, we're not, not going to do it. it. And, and but, I applaud them. I applaud them. But, but I got to tell you, I, I saw a ball that was look, it looked like a moonshot, and 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 ultimately they did review it as a home run. But for a second there, it was it was at the ground rule double, and I'm like, wait a minute, this guy, if that would have been a home run in every stadium, but because of this damn roof's in the way, it just it, it was maddening to me. It, it, it was driving me crazy. So that 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 okay, I would agree that that is the worst current stadium because the rest of them, I mean, if you look around, you know, all around baseball, most of these stadiums are 
fairly new. I mean, uh, you know, take away Wrigley Field, which is special for its own reasons, along with Fenway Park. But but yeah, I feel bad for the Rays. But you know, playing baseball outdoors in Tampa Bay, I I, I don't think is is reasonable. Right, right. Yeah. That that's yeah. for sure. And, and also, the criticism of today modern era stadiums really has to do with that one design company that did the new. Comiskey that did the new Tiger Stadium, um, and there's a lot of criticism that those stadiums are not aging well, but nothing like what we've seen in Tropicana. But anyways, what's going on in Chicago? Well, you know, Fergie Jenkins, they they built a statue to him. They put up a statue, and that happened, I guess they had the dedication of the statue on Saturday. And uh, this is, you know, far, far too long. In He's the greatest pitcher in the history of the franchise, what the hell took him so long? I know, I know, I know. But but I think the problem with Fergie is that he wasn't a Cub for his entire career, that they traded him to the Rangers and, you know, he was still effective. I think he returns to the Cubs and wins 20 games again. But this is a guy who, you know, every single year won 20 games. You know, he was an extremely productive uh, major league pitcher. At the time uh, of his retirement, he was the only pitcher to strike out more than 3,000 hitters and walk fewer than 1,000 hitters. And he was a man with great control. He threw the ball over the plate. He threw strikes. He made hitters put the ball in play. And uh, and if you hit it, generally it was an out. And if you didn't, it was a strikeout. And uh, I, I this is a man who, a Canadian no less, who I admire a great deal. And he's still sharp as a tack. He is still, you know, even though he's very old, he's still, you know, uh, this is a guy who played with Ron Sano, who did not age. He's one of my favorite Twitter go-to guys. Oh, yeah? He is, basically, he's part of the resistance. He's got a very lucid mind, and he's, he's always got something very interesting to say. This is kind of egregious, but I have to say kudos to the Ricketts because, first of all, they they made it right. Second of all, this is a beautiful statue that kind of captures the, the one of the few around that park to me that captured that look on Jenkins. Jenkins had a certain um, almost scowl about him that yeah. was similar to Bob Gibson when he pitched, and they kind of captured that. Um, but you know, it's just it, it just you could say yes, he pitched for other teams, but I think he has the most wins as a Cubs pitcher of any pitcher or one of the one of the most, and so. Um, it, it's just, it was a feel good moment. Fortunately, I got to see the unveiling of it. I, just so happens it was on TV while I was watching it. And, uh, you know, he was as gracious as ever. And uh, Billy Williams and uh, his, one of his best friends, uh, you know, the whole, everybody was there to, uh, well, and by the way, Williams and him are maybe two of the only guys that have been venerated like that, yeah. um, that are still alive to enjoy it. I mean, that's the problem with these statues. If you think about it, you know, Dangerfield would say, you know, they take up a lot of space and the person that they're, they're, they're there for can't really get any pleasure from it. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. And uh, I remember Billy Williams was once interviewed in a, in a, in a Roger Angel essay. Nice. And, uh, Angel got the quote that said that, boy, you know, it was great when, when, when uh, Gibson and Jenkins would match up together because you could actually make plans after the game. You know, that they got <laughs> with it. You know what I mean? You, 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 you were on time for your re- restaurant reservations? Yeah, right. You could you could actually get out, get a bite to eat in St. Louis, right, you know, right. for a night game when those two matched up. So, uh, all right. Now, have you heard about young Christopher Morell? Well, yeah. I mean, after his, his first game, did, did the Cub, did he, so to, for so our listener out there, he, he's, he's, he's yeah. a new Cub. Yeah. And did he not homer in his first at bat? He homered in his first at bat, you know, and he called it, which was kind of cool that he's sitting there on the bench. He had just been called up from the minor leagues. And this was after he told David Ross in spring training, he's like, you watch it. I'm going to see you up here this year. And when he saw Ross in the dugout after he was finally brought up, he's like, see, I told you I'd be here. And so he's sitting on the bench talking to Contreras and he's like, I'm going to hit a home run. I'm going to hit a home run. Who, who is this guy? And and he's just a young, exuberant kid. And and when you consider what he had been through to get to the major leagues, you know, the backstory to all of this is even more remarkable. 
he had been in the minors or he'd been in sort of a, a one of these uh, development camps. I think it was in the Dominican Republic and they were going to play an away game and he had to get on a bus to go to the other team's park. And uh, he had he was told he had like 10 or 15 minutes before the bus left and he was sitting in this kind of eating area or whatever. And then someone says, hey, hey, the bus is leaving. The bus is leaving. And, he, and he's like, oh, crap, He gets up and runs to the bus and runs through a glass door. Oh, and, yeah, 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 yeah. I remember yeah. this story. This was they yeah. actually reported this when this happened. Yeah. And he he got glass in his eye. He cut his eye. He almost lost his eye. He had glass cut. He had major nerve damage in his arms. Wow. They told him it was going to be two years before he would even be able to play again. And he was back out there after one year. He finally, you know, gets to uh, he gets to the Cubs spring training camp. And then they call him up in the middle of the year. And and he, I, I mean, this kid just has all the energy, all, he brings all this excitement. He's just so happy to be there. And if you were there at the game, they were saying that like the Cubs fans knew that it was his debut and they were urging him on to do something great. And the count got to three and two. And it's just like one of those magical Wrigley Field moments where the fans are tied to what's happening on the field. And uh, you've been there for it. I've oh, been for sure. For it. And the, the problem is with this guy is later when they went to interview him in the press box, once again, he walked right through the door again. And it's like, hey, you know, somebody's got to talk to this guy. I don't know if you saw Curb Your Enthusiasm this year, but the very first episode, which Albert Brooks, the, the genius Albert Brooks is in, there is a scene where someone does just that, walks through glass, a beautiful glass door, and it is one of the funniest things ever. If you get a chance, we'll check it out. But I just, I always wonder, in my, and I can hear my dead mother going, you know, you got to worry about someone that walks through a glass door. I mean, it just. <laughs> my friend, my friend Neil Perryman walked through a glass door in Spain, although it didn't break. He just walked into it and it, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I remember. <laughs> so it does happen. It, it does happen. You know, but. Uh, but but hardly the dumbest thing this week because um, there's some infighting going on with the White Sox right now. What's that all about? There is trouble within the White Sox family, and it begins when Ozzie Guillen, the former White Sox manager, the former World Series winning White Sox manager, <laughs> criticized the White Sox for not starting Tim Anderson in the second game of a doubleheader. Right. And, uh, you know, now – Guillen may have been a little out of line because Anderson has played in every game except for the two games that he was suspended. suspended, Yeah, right. But he's played in every game. So I think if LaRusso wants to rest him in the second game of a doubleheader, I'm fine with that. But Guillen is old school and Guillen is also an analyst and he's paid to offer his opinion. Now, as a result of that, uh, Tim Anderson took to Twitter and said, Ozzie Guillen needs to STFU, meaning shut the fuck up. And he later removed the Twitter, you know, the tweet, as it were. But I think somebody talked to Tim and said, hey, you know, he's allowed to say that, and that's fine. And Guillen, I heard him on Sports Talk Radio saying, look, I'm going to say what I think, and I'm going to call it like I see it. And White Sox fans know me for being an honest guy. They will know if I'm being a shill for the team and I would lose credibility. And, uh, you know, I think Guillen actually said, yeah, Oh, you're saying we got some more listeners. Yeah. You know, he kind of, kind of took it tongue in cheek and and Anderson who to me is maybe the heart and soul of that white Sox team. He does get a mo. He's had issues. He's been suspended for doing certain things. So, but, but I think people try to push his buttons and we're going to talk about that in a second. But, 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 you know, this is the first time that I've ever been where I agree with Ozzie Guillen. And, and the reason why I say that is, is because the modern athletes today, they've done things with the schedule to help protect them. It's not the 1960s and 70s anymore. And yeah. I think that, you know, 
I, I somewhat agree with Ozzie Gein. You know, the Sox aren't doing so well. Why don't you why don't you keep you got so a doubleheader? Right. You know, right. find another way to get this guy his rest, but you need him out there. It was the same thing with the Brave. No one criticized that a Brave sat in that game too. Oh, the only people that did are were fantasy baseball players out there who are pissed off that they lost a, a game's full of at bats and which basically was the rain out the day before. So it's it's this is a kind of a complicated situation that I see all sides of this. But the thing that I took away was I think Anderson has uh, old man's back. You know, yeah. for him to say STFU, basically, to me, that is a uh, protection of the old man, the, yeah. the old skipper. Yeah, maybe, maybe, oh. maybe, yeah, that, that he's defending La Russa. Right. By right. doing that. Yeah, that could be. That could be. I would also argue that uh, Anderson may be a little thin skinned. He may be a little, you know, but that's all right. Um, I, I, I think it's over. I don't think it, it, it's a non-issue when you really think about it. And I don't think it's going to affect anything in terms of how they play. I mean, the White Sox have enough problems as it is with injuries and, and just sort of not playing as well as they were expected. Right. But, uh, but, but they did bring in a pitcher to help because they have so many injuries to their starting rotation. <clears throat> and, uh, that man is Johnny Cueto. Yeah. And, uh, this is the... I don't know. This is sort of the the, the second incarnation of Louis Tiant. Yeah. You know, uh, Cueto is just a really fun guy to watch yeah. pitch. Yeah. He doesn't throw as hard as he used to, not when he was with the Reds and with the right, Royals right. and so on and so forth, or with the Giants even. But he's still, you know, a, a veteran pitcher who knows how to get guys out. And he loves to do that little hesitation, that little shimmy, where he goes into his windup and just yeah, before yeah. he pivots – he just kind of shimmies that thing and then the hitch, the hitch. Right. And he delivers the pitch just a second later, kind of to upset timing. And he's just so much fun to watch. And he really makes the White Sox interesting. And then when when Lance Lynn comes back, I think that uh, that that uh, what's his name? Keuchel yeah. will be gone from the rotation and, and Cueto will occupy that spot. Maybe Cueto. I love Johnny Cueto. My days of playing fantasy baseball, he's one of my favorite players. You could always rely on him. I do think his best days are behind him, however. To me, the interesting story is, Johnny, what's this tricked out ambulance you have with these speakers that are so, he's got, it's like a a $200,000 vehicle that they park it near fancy outdoor pools and the water rattles in the pool. That's how loud it gets out there. I love it. I love it. He's the most interesting man in baseball, really, as since, uh, you know, since we lost uh, Bartolo Colon to retirement. Um, I hope it works out for them. I hope the Sox need to kind of turn around uh, quickly because I will tell you their minus run differential is getting worse. It's not getting better. Um, they're 500 again. We were a week later. They're basically they put, we're four and six their last 10 games. Right, the Sox great. need yeah. to turn the corner. Lynn will help, but he's not going to be able to, to, to steer the ship all that much if they don't get some support from some of the other pitchers. The good news is, Dylan Cease is a great pitcher, yeah. uh, and I do think that, you know, and, and Michael Kopech is is giving you very able starts, basically starting out of the bullpen. So who knows? But uh, I, I do think that uh, La Russa is a little bit on the hot, on the hot seat, I, I would have to say, at this at this stage. And, well, and something very nasty happened that late that we're reporting this morning, and that is that Tim Anderson had a little dust-up with uh, Josh Donaldson, um, and uh, and apparently Donaldson made some kind of remark to Anderson that... Say, called, hey, Jackie. Hey, Jackie. Yeah, he called him Jackie, Jackie Robinson. Let me just tell you that I hate Josh Donaldson. I've always hated Josh Donaldson. He's the only man in the history of baseball to be thrown out in a home run trot. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I've never seen it at any level, at any level, even yeah. with 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 T-ball. I've never seen anybody thrown out of the game. That's what kind of a disagreeable guy this is. And in the wake of those those incredibly um, heartbreaking shootings, this is the major leagues, and this is the 21st century. This this racism has got to stop. I I don't know exactly what happened. And I don't know exactly I don't either. how it went down. But this does relate back to a 2019 Sports Illustrated interview with Tim Anderson, where he said he considers himself the modern Jackie Robinson. 
and that Donaldson says that he's teased him about it before. That when when Donaldson was with Atlanta or whatever, and they played uh, the White Sox, he said, "Hey, Jackie," and it was right after the interview. Now that was three years ago, and he said that they had a laugh about it then, and uh, he does it again. And Anderson. So, so Leo, let me just. So let's say that you're that that's true. Not, do, you think that, do you think that's a funny comment to say, Josh? Even I, if that is true, you've been doing it all along. What what's what's good about that, Josh? You're a dick. That's what you are. I, I certainly have no problem with calling Josh Donaldson a dick. You know what I mean? I, I I don't know exactly what happened. And the problem is, is I didn't see the game live. I haven't really seen. I've only read about what was just, you know, I've only read descriptions about what happened. So it's hard for me to to say or to call Donaldson a racist. You know, Larusa said that he used a racist comment. Um, who is it? The White Sox catcher, Grandal. It was Grandal who kind of stood up for uh, for Anderson. Um, you know, tensions are high on this yeah, White yeah. Sox team that has been kicked They're around under a lot of pressure. Yeah, they really are. And the Yankees have kicked them around and yeah. said, you True. are not a better team than we are. And they're not. They're, they're and, definitely not. They're not. And, and you know, Aaron Boone says he's going to get to the bottom of this. And yeah, we'll you know, there's see. a lot to sort of think about here. The White Sox, I don't want to call them red asses, but <laughs> I think they are feeling the heat, you know, and uh, and that is a bit of a concern. In this world, a man himself. It's nothing. And there ain't no world but this one. I've seen another world. Sometimes I think it was just my imagination. Go! Go! I killed a man. Worst thing you can do, nobody can touch me for it. I want you to attack right now with every man at your disposal. I've lived with these men, sir, for two and a half years, and I will not order them all to their deaths. You're just too soft-hearted. You're not tough-fibered enough. Have you ever had anyone die in your arms, sir? All right, that concludes our Peanuts discussion. Let's get right to the popcorn. And you chose the movie this week, The Thin Red Line, uh, filmed by Terrence Malick with an all-star cast, guys like yeah, Nick yeah. Nolte, George Clooney, on and on, Woody Harrelson. Sean Penn. Sean Penn, exactly. A great, a great cast, uh, directed by Terrence Malick. Uh, it's about the American battle on Guadalcanal if I'm not mistaken. It, it actually, just to put it in historical perspective, this occurred in mid-1943. Right. If you remember uh, Pearl Harbor, late 1941, this was the very first U.S. offensive of yeah. World War II. It took that long to get the U.S. war machine up to the point where the Marines initially went on to Guadalcanal, the U.S. Army bailed them out. Right. But, but anyways, go ahead. I like the way you describe her. No, but uh, what I'm saying is, um, so I like this movie a lot. Um, and there's a lot to like about it. It is beautifully filmed. You know, the you see the sort of idyllic beauty of Guadalcanal and how beautiful it is as a place. Yeah. But then how horrible that place can be in the face of battle. And not a shot is fired for the first 40, 45 minutes of the movie. Right, you know. Right. And, and there's all this kind of tense buildup towards that first action. And then, you know, the uh, the captain who's being sort of urged to make a frontal assault on the Japanese position. And the night before he prays, you know, he prays and he says, let me not betray my men, you know. And uh, it, it it is I think it's a movie about the horrors of war and the toll it takes on the human mind. Um, I don't think it's a movie that people will enjoy. Uh, it is not a fun movie by any stretch of the imagination. It, it is an interesting movie. It is a movie that I liked, 
but I can't say that I enjoyed it. And I want to hear what you have to say. So um, this is in my top 10 films I've ever seen. It's number six currently. Uh, It's a four star movie. And let me tell you why this film, um, which Ebert only gave three stars to. And again, once another week, I've disagreed with him on this. Malik knew exactly what he was going to do. He hadn't made a film in 20 years and he decided to, um, you know, he loves Stanley Kubrick. So when he built this film, this film was going to be overlong. It was going to be all over the roadmap. That was part of the intent because he was like, when I read this novel, that's what spoke to me. It wasn't just what happened in the war. It was the, you know, how mundane things could be. And I think that that this film perfectly captures it so much so that Adrian Brody, who was told that he was the lead in the film, saw 99% of his scenes cut in the editing process, which Malik took a minimum of a year to edit every film he's ever made. I will tell our, our, our movie watchers out there, he's only made a handful of films. They're all great in their own way. Some are better than others. But to me, this is his best film. And I'm going to give you some of the reasons why. This movie is about nature. It's not about man. It's not about humans. Because I've never seen a war picture where you see lizards and beautiful birds kind of going, what the hell's going on around here with all this bombing and firing? Like, that's what really touched me was this. What what Malik was saying about war was so damning. It, it is it, it there is there is there is the beauty of Guadalcanal as war engulfed it. Uh, Mid while there was all of these people fighting, there was this great scene where these soldiers are walking in a row and all of a sudden a native walks by him and the native looks at the soldiers like, what are you guys doing? What are you doing here? And it was just this moment where I was like, I I, he's you, you always feel with Malik that he sets up which he does multiple scenes and then just drops cameras and mics in it and, and tells the actors oftentimes just improvise, uh, improvise the scenes and let's see what happens. Valor and cowardice on equal display. Like, you know, it's very unusual where yeah. you see uh, there was there was he didn't really pick, take a sign and it, perfectly capturing the fear on soldiers before they landed uh, on Guadalcanal. Where you're literally physically shaking, as you know, most likely you're going to go into the meat grinder. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, by the way, John Savage, he has played every mental war guy who was impacted negatively by war from 19, uh, you know, 75 to, to 2000, and he does it expertly here. There's a couple moments where I don't even know what this guy is going to do: turn around and start shooting on his own, uh, you know, his own guys. It's, uh, you know, oh, the only time you worry about a soldier is when he stops bitching. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> they said to, said to Sean, Sean Patty, his character, who was who played a great guy that tried to balance the humanity of his soldiers and their and their conditions and with the, with the, rich, yeah. with the rigors of war. That somebody said uh, is one of his little nemesis in the film said, hey, do you ever get lonely? He goes only when there's people around. <laughs> so there's all of these things. And Nick Nolte plays this. This guy who Colonel, he, yeah. he was out of the academy. He didn't get to be in world. He was too young for World War One and too old for World War Two. There was plenty of these guys, by the way. And he just wanted to make a name for himself in World War Two. The John uh, Cusack character is actually based on John Bass alone, a real guy. And mm-hmm. that guy won yeah. the won the, uh, the Medal of Honor at Guadalcanal, and he won the Navy uh, Cross on uh, Iwo Jima. Almost a, almost a double Medal of Honor winner, but he was ultimately sadly killed on Iwo Jima. Uh, so, uh, you know, I kept thinking of that Marlon Brando line. The horror and moral terror. Because the horror and the moral terror of war has... It, it, the, the, the narrator goes, this great evil, where does it come from? And that's what I kept saying to myself. With all of this nature and this beauty, where does this come from that we want to kill each other like this? Where, why, why do we keep time? And even today, it's still going on. It seems as though that's one of the big flaws of the human is the fact that ultimately it must devolve 
into the chaos of war. That we always are finding ways to destroy one another, that we're finding ways to kill one yep. another. And maybe this is something that we can never avoid. It's the human condition. It's it's baked into our DNA because we're so successful as a species that if we don't find ways to kill each other, we would completely overrun the planet. So yeah. maybe that's so, it. I don't so, know. So the, the thin red line is from the Rudyard Kipling um, poem, Tommy, um, which he describes the foot soldiers as the thin ri- red line of eros, meant yeah. to say heroes, but eros. Eros. Yeah, eros. So um, I love this film. Again, it's number six. To me, it's the greatest war movie I ever saw. Uh, Gene Siskel, who I disliked, and someday I will tell you my personal story of him, uh, said it was the greatest war movie ever made. Huh. That I, I don't agree with that. But I do think it is an important film. And if you haven't seen it, you need to see it. And, um, you know, Malick certainly is what I like about when I like it when directors are very intentional about the film that they're trying to make. You know, that Woody Allen and other great directors, Stanley Kubrick, you can go down the line. When they make a great movie, there's an intent behind it, a vision that the director, the artist, has in mind before yes. they begin shooting and to execute that vision with such attention to detail and such intention, I think really, I don't know, it's the highest form of the art. It really is. So, yeah. So that again, love that film. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. So we have a movie for next week. Next week's movie is a little more, I will call it entertaining, a little funnier. And it's a movie that I enjoy. I will always stop to see it. It is with Hugh Grant and Calm Meany. It is the Englishman who went up a hill but came down a mountain. That's a great, great choice. Good. I'm glad. So you've seen it. Um, pieces, but I look forward to seeing it. But I just think that's a nice way to cut the palate there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. So until next week, we are the two peas in a podcast. Oh, bang the drums slowly and play the fight lowly play the dead march as they carry me along put bunches of roses all over my coffin roses to deaden the clouds as they fall